This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Is This Real Life? Bravo podcast that relates our favorite shows to our own lives and the world around us. I'm your host, Mandy Slutsker. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Hope you all had a Merry Christmas uh, to those who celebrate Ah, it feels again like 2020 with all of this COVID running around. Even Andy Cohen got it again. Oh, I felt so bad for him. I mean, what luck to be vaccinated, get a booster, and then get COVID for the second time. Ugh. Well, I just got back from a week in Brooklyn visiting my newborn niece and helping out. So I don't have a guest today, but I am going to go through all the Bravo news and do recaps of The Real Housewives of the OC and The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. So gear up. It is going to be a good episode. (laughs) I first wanted to start out by thanking a listener, um, Metra Ferrari, who sent me her book, All the Blues Come Through through. She's going to be on the podcast in a few weeks with another author, Samantha, both from Minnesota. I am so excited to host them, but it was so sweet to receive your book in the mail. Definitely made this holiday season a little bit more cheery. Okay, so let's start out with the Bravo news that Megan King is splitting from Cuff Owens after just a little bit more than two months of marriage. Oh, this makes me really sad because I wanted a happily ever after for her, but it did seem like they rushed into getting married and it's logistically very complicated if you live in two different places and you've got three children involved and an ex-husband that you share custody with. So uh, I just, I'm just sad. Oh, but I don't know. Wishing her the best. Pretty smart move to get that story on page six out on Christmas Eve when a lot of people probably aren't paying attention. But you know, Bravo fans are always paying attention. You can't get anything past us. If you file for divorce on Election Day, we find out. If you announce a split on Christmas Eve, we find out. We are always glued to our page six, our Radar Online, our Bravo accounts. Nothing seems to get past us. And you know who is learning this right now? None other than Sweet James Bergener. I mean, this man has the audacity to pick up and leave his wife, move to Puerto Rico, and file for divorce there. I mean, he is so shady. And there are so many things that have come out this last week about their marriage, about how they met, about um, how they had a child, and everything in between. So I want to go 
through some of these things, because I actually find this story really fascinating. And I know I've said that Noella kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um, I'm saying that in the fact that I don't think she's someone that I could ever be friends with and someone that I probably would be very wary of just because she's the kind of person who divulges a lot of personal information to people that she just met, kind of forms bonds a little too quickly, and that makes me um, uncomfortable. And But as a housewife, I think it could work quite well. And I definitely feel for her in her situation with sweet James, or as Shane calls him, not so sweet James. So here's what happened this week. According to Noella, she got a call from James the first time they've spoken in five months. And he was like, I need some PR help. Like, I'm looking really bad. Let's figure this out. And she's like, I'm happy to help you. But in return, I expect you to stop holding up financial support, get your son a Christmas gift. And she was saying she was going to use her divorce settlement to buy a home for her and the son and that she would publicly thank him. And according to Noella, hours after they had this conversation, he set up a Instagram account for himself and posted a series of three videos where he claims that he has been providing financial support, that he does love his son, and he shares a lot of uh, personal information about how their son came to be, which is actually via surrogacy in the country of Georgia. And I looked into this a bit, and it appears that, you know, Noella went through a few rounds of IVF, uh, likely overseas, and they had a surrogate in the country of Georgia um, carry the child. A lot of reasons people do international surrogacy is because it's about, at least in Georgia, I think, half the price of what it would cost to do it in the United States. And sometimes the regulations are a little bit different. But um, what's really interesting that kind of came out from both of them is that neither of them were physically there when the surrogate went into labor, which I find kind of odd. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but like if you know that um, your child is about to be born, wouldn't you go like around when their due date is, maybe a few weeks early and kind of hang out in Georgia until until your child is born? Um, it sounds like when the surrogate went into labor, Noella immediately got on a plane, but James came a few days later. And all of that sounds super weird to me. He also talks about how difficult it was to leave the country with his son due to um, bureaucracy and paperwork. And it's like, of course, you're a lawyer, you should know this. Like, <laughs> this isn't another country, you know, like a, a birth certificate is different there. Uh, who is listed as the mother and father on that birth certificate can differ depending on, you know, some countries only will list the surrogate as the the mother. It's such a complicated situation. Anyway, um, Noella goes on Instagram and decides to go into all of the lies that have been said about her over the last few weeks. And I actually really appreciate it because, you know, we've all kind of heard that she met James on a website for people that were looking for sugar daddies while he was married. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it is what it is, right? Uh, and so here, 
here is sort of what it sounds like happened. James wanted Noella on the show to promote his brand, and I think he also wanted it for her. She says that they did a background check as part of the process to be on Bravo. I'm assuming it's not just a criminal background check, but also a credit check. And at this point, it became she became aware of his tax debts. And then he started to hesitate because I don't think he thought that that would come out when this all was happening and that it would be on TV. So I think he got upset with her at this point. Um, there is a lie. She says that she was going to file for separation, which is what led him to file for a divorce. She says, no, she retained an attorney with his blessing. He paid the retainer. They were trying to figure out about his partner's indictment, a financial divorce from his ex, his tax debts. None of it made sense to her. Um, and she wanted a third party to confirm that he was being truthful. She says he wasn't being truthful. And she found this out by consulting with an attorney, but she still did not file for separation or for divorce. Um, she says it's a lie that James has paid any support. She said he cut his uh, their shared credit cards. He cut her Venmo and PayPal, which is what she was using to pay uh, their child's therapist. She has to send him invoices, which she says he often pays late, which results in their son not getting treatment that particular week. Oy, what a mess. She also says it's a lie that they're divorced. Um, she claims that he fraudulently filed for divorce in Puerto Rico due to his tax scheme. And it's under appeal because he's lied multiple times in his testimony. And his jurisdiction is in California where they were residents and where they are ma- they were married. So he claims that the divorce was made final in Puerto Rico on December 8th. She is like, that is a load of shit. We do not recognize that divorce. I mean, what a mess. This guy is an attorney. He knows what he's doing. Emily Simpson mentioned it this week. Like he got out of there. He got went to Puerto Rico and he filed there on purpose because their legal system is different than California's and California's legal system would protect Noella more. Um. She also, she meaning Noella, says that he has been in and out of the OC multiple times in the last five months, including to get Botox, uh, but never actually saw their child together. Oh, that's awful. Um She also claims that he had multiple mistresses, some who have sued him and issues with addiction before she met him. And if anything, she cleaned him up, gave him a family and a stronger law practice and was very proud of the man that he was becoming. This whole situation is just so messy and I, I I don't know. I side with Noella. Like she's being truthful. She's saying he went to Puerto Rico and he filed, and all of that is just a load of shit because his residency is in California, and he doesn't want to have to pay me what he's supposed to pay me, and he doesn't want to have to. He's not holding up his side of of the bargain of what he should be doing upon separation, and the fact that he hasn't physically seen his child. One that they went to such great lengths to get. You know, they went through IVF. That is such a grueling process. They had a surrogate. That's not an easy process either. And after all of that, he's just not seen this kid. Oh, my God. I don't know. Sweet James, not so sweet. I do feel that there is 
some similarity between this situation and what's going on between Lala Kent and Randall Emmett, and that both of them seem to ignore a lot of red flags about their partner. Lala didn't get married, but she had a child with Randall. She said this week that he had always been on the phone and was sort of addicted to his phone. She wasn't allowed to look at his phone and that he was also absent a lot, you know, traveling, gone, out of the house. And she said those all should have been red flags that she was paying attention to, but she just ignored them. And I think, you know, Noella You know, she's saying that she met James and that he had multiple mistresses prior to that. And, and she's like ignoring that as if he wouldn't do that to her. I think the same thing happened with Randall when he was with his ex. He cheated on her. They got divorced. Lala, you know, met him while he was getting separated, or some people believe that she was one of the mistresses. I don't know what's true. I have to take her at her word, but. You know, if someone is a serial cheater, it's not like one mistake or something like that. It, it seems like it's part of their lifestyle. It seems like Randall's lifestyle was part, which cheating was part of it. And that using his name and his connections to get more women and it was like a power dynamic. And I think maybe Sweet James might have been, you know, a little bit similar. So the moral of the story is. Ladies, make sure you always have some sort of bank account, something, money in your name that you can use to escape if you need to escape in any situation. Lala had that. She was able to leave very quickly. Um, Noella didn't. And, you know, we're all getting to witness all of that unfold. Um, and it's it's really sad. It's really sad. Um, and I, I wish the best for both of them. All right, I am going to do a recap of this week's Real Housewives of Orange County, and then we'll get into Salt Lake. So this episode starts out with Dr. Jen and Heather Dubrow having champagne at Jen's house. Um, They kind of seem like people who would actually get along and potentially hang out in real life. So I do appreciate that. Sometimes when you see, for example, Noella and Shannon together, it's like this is such an odd couple. Shannon would never hang out with Noella. Why? Like, it doesn't seem as natural. Um, Both Dr. Jen and Heather Dubrow seem to be kind of no-nonsense, not overly emotional, also like to have a good time. They talk about the anti-aging world. Um, Dr. Jen talks about how she doesn't want any of her patients to look like they've had work done, but rather that they've come back from vacation. And I think that has to be the motto. If anyone is considering doing procedures or plastic surgery, you want someone to make it look like you came back from vacation. Um, Dr. Jen mentions that Noella spoke condescendingly to her at Heather's party, and they show this flashback that we didn't see in previous episodes, where Noella's defending Nicole, um, who showed up at Heather's house um, after 16 years earlier uh, suing Heather's husband, Terry Dubrow, for a botched boob job and had been friends with Heather for, I think, six years, and this never came out. And I think Dr. Jen, while they were all sitting around chatting, was like, okay, but she should have told Heather at some point. You don't just go to someone's dinner party having had, you know, sued their husband and never mention it. And 
Noella, it sounds like, was being pretty condescending and trying to quiet Dr. Jen by saying, we've all had bad days, Jennifer, Jennifer. And so, you know, I could see how Dr. Jen would be annoyed by that. Um, Then we get this incredibly uncomfortable scene where Nicole and Noella are getting lunch. This is the day after Noella was served divorce papers. And she looks gorgeous as always, but it's clear that she's been crying a lot. Her eyes are very puffy. They look like they're sort of half shut, which is the look I get if I ever take like clonopin. <laughs> like you just like look out of it. And uh, I don't know, maybe she'd taken something. I would not blame her after, you know, she's probably having panic attacks. This is such a scary and awful situation. So she's wearing these sunglasses. She's sobbing. And guys, like when she showed up, Noella seemed off to me. Like she had been drinking. She had taken something. Um, I know she was upset, but she seemed not quite entirely lucid to me. And then she proceeds to order a bunch of drinks. And Nicole looks at her and says, I don't think this is the answer all the time, but I think today it's all right. Basically saying getting drunk as a response to what's happening is probably not a very healthy response, but I'll let it go for right now because you're in crisis. Um, (laughs) Noella looks down and said, Oh my God, there's tears on my tits. <laughs> like she's not wearing a bra. Her, her, you know, you can see her nipples through her, her, her top. She's got this, you know, tear stains. And it's, I felt so bad for her, but also like slightly jealous of how good she looks during what is arguably one of the worst days of her life. Um, So, you know, Nicole is asking her questions like, have you spoken to him? Does he answer if you call? So Noella calls him and it rings and rings, but he does not answer. And she just starts sobbing and asking, can you hug me? I need a hug, please. And Nicole just doesn't seem to have it in her to know how to respond in this situation. Like, she's like, oh, I didn't know you wanted me to come over there. <laughs> like, no, I was telling her, like, I need a hug. Please hug me. <laughs> like, I think, guys, and I know everyone's like taken Noella's side on this and says Nicole is awful and not showing any emotion, but I don't know. I think Nicole was really uncomfortable at how drunk, um, Noella was getting. And the reason I say that is because Nicole, you know, says, I don't feel comfortable at one point when she gets up and is trying to get Noella to leave. I don't know. I really think that this scene should have just been shot somewhere in private, like in one of their homes, rather than at a public restaurant. Um, But I also am not quite sure why Nicole was so focused on what other people we're thinking like, yes, everyone's going to look at them, not just because Noella is sobbing uncontrollably, but because there are cameras there and a film crew, and I'm sure people are staring. You're a reality TV star, and you should expect that. So I don't know. I, I understand that Nicole was uncomfortable, but I feel like she should have been like, hey, honey, like, let's go somewhere where it's safe. You know, let, let's make you feel safe. Like, clearly, this is not the spot. But she doesn't really show that warmth. 
And she just kind of like hurries Noella out and it just felt really uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, Noelle is just like, my life is falling apart. And I just, I feel so bad, but I'm very grateful that Noella's mother is there to help her pick up the pieces because she definitely needs some help right now. Then we see Shannon at her business, which is Real for Real Cuisine, with her daughter Stella, who has begun working for her. And Stella really knows her mom. Like, she's like, I know my mom can be annoying and overbearing, but, you know, she's my mom. (laughs) And I think it's sweet that her daughters are filming more confessionals because it seems to me that Shannon's boyfriend is not very interested in being on the show. And to kind of give her a storyline and show what's going on with her home life, she needs her daughters. And so they seem to have really stepped up. Um, Shannon then proceeds to talk about her financial situation post-divorce from David. She says she received two lump sums, um, which she invested in her company, and that she gets a certain amount from David per month. And I don't know if that is alimony or if that is child support, if it ends when the twins uh, turn 18. I'm, I'm not sure. But she's saying that this isn't enough to cover all of the family's expenses. Plus, she has to pay for Sophie's college and then in a couple years may have to pay for the twins' college. And that's two college tuitions at once. It appears to me that college was not in their divorce agreement. It just wasn't negotiated into it. Shannon mentions that a lot of things were left out of the negotiation. And honestly... Like, what a dick. David Bedore is such an asshole. He has so much money. And personally, this is my personal view, I think if a parent has a lot of money, that they should pay for their children's education. I know a lot of parents try to pay for their children's education who don't have a lot of money. I just think going into debt is not great you know, when you're 18 and, you know, for for college, if you can avoid it because you have wealthy parents, like that is an incredible gift to give your children. The fact that he's not paying for Sophie's college is wild to me. And I know he's got this new wife and has a new family, but he should not forget his daughters that he had with Shannon. And uh, I don't know. I know that there's like a lot of people that say, oh, you need to teach your children the value of money. They have to work. They have to pay for things themselves. I understand that. I just think education is a great way to get them started on their life as an adult. And if you can start your life as an adult without going into massive debt, I know a lot of my listeners are from the UK and Canada and Australia where going to university is not... as expensive. And in the US, it is insane. Like tuition can cost, you know, $60,000 a year in some places. It is so wildly expensive to go to college here. And we have 
this horrible situation where people take out loans, student loans, which have extremely high interest rates. So you could be paying off your loans and just be paying off the interest and not actually getting into the amount that you borrowed. So if you borrow, let's say, $200,000 to go to university, you could end up paying like three times that back to the government and it will take you 30 plus years. It's a horrible system that is very broken. And I am going to get off my soapbox about that. <laughs> um, then we see Emily and Gina go to dinner with their partners. And Emily mentions that her and Nicole sat down, talked, are totally fine now. Um, they then talk about Noella and her divorce. And Shane comes in with the best one-liners. He's like, not so sweet James, huh? <laughs> they talk about how Emily is throwing Shane a party the next day for passing the bar and that James was on the guest list. Uh, and, you know, Shane is like, I don't think he's flying back for my party. And Emily points out what I had said earlier in this episode, that James is likely in Puerto Rico on purpose because he knows that for California divorce law, you can't shut off credit cards. There are different rules that protect your partner. And he's trying to skirt a bunch of stuff and keep running this weird tax scheme that Noella mentioned. And he's also trying to screw her over by filing in Puerto Rico. Um, they also chat a little bit about Shannon. Shane doesn't want drama going on at his passing the bar party. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, he knows there's going to be drama. That's all they do. That is the point of this show. Um, then we go back to Shannon. We see her take Stella to Dr. Moon, who we haven't seen. We haven't seen Dr. Moon in a bit. So it was nice to check in with him. Um, and Apparently, Stella has some back pain from volleyball, and Stella says that she doesn't believe in holistic medicine, but she's trying to make her mom happy, so she's going to see Dr. Moon, which is really sweet. It's sad. It's like children shouldn't have to do this to try and make their parents happy, but I, I understand why she's doing it. And I think holistic medicine is great, especially as to accompany other forms of medicine, with like if I had a child that had back pain, especially from a sport, I would probably try and get them to a physical therapist first just to identify what the problem was and figure out what exercises and stuff could be done to address it. But going directly to Dr. Moon is just it's so Shannon. It's so Shannon. And Stella, just she continues to break my heart. She says, I want my mom to be happy, and I don't think she's truly there yet. There are a lot of things that she hasn't gotten over, and I want to see her in her best self and thrive. I hope that Shannon, for all that we know Shannon is, is able to watch this show back, see what her daughter is saying about her, and really take stock of where she's at in her life and changes she may may need to make in order to get her to where she is happier and thriving. And I don't know, if she's not in therapy, Shannon, probably more than any of these women on this, you know, show needs therapy. Like, she's clearly not over her divorce. She's not over so many things in her life. And 
for, you know, her own sake and the sake of her children, I hope she's able to work through them and just let go of some things. So then we get back to Noella and we have this scene of Noella and her mother sitting at their grand, you know, house by the pool outside. And it comes out that Noella's mom refused to meet James the first year that they dated because she didn't think he was good news. And a mother's intuition, let me tell you, Noella's Noella's mom was right. I mean, he wasn't good news. And I think James is so suave and is so good at what he does that he was able to charm Noella and her mother because he definitely won her mom over. And they're both very taken aback by him just getting up and leaving and going to Puerto Rico. And it seems like Noella at this point is still holding on to hope that things could get fixed, that if she could just talk to him, if they could just talk this through, that he'll come back and they'll be a family again. And it seems like Noella's mom sees the writing on the wall and is basically like, I think he's gone. But I don't think Noella has accepted that yet. And so it'll be interesting to watch as this progresses. Um, so then we get to Emily's party for Shane passing the bar. I love the scene of her trying to get in the dress uh, before the party when she's getting ready because it was one of the most relatable things. Like the dress clearly fits her. It's just a little tight around the chest and she needed help, you know, kind of holding it together and getting it zipped up. And then when something fell and she was trying to pick it up in the yard and because the dress, the way the dress was and how tight it was, like she couldn't actually bend over. I was cracking up like that. That is very, very relatable. Um, On the way to the party, we see Nicole and the bros and Nicole's boyfriend who doesn't say a word, at least on camera in this episode. Um, And Nicole tells Heather that the other day when Noella was very drunk, she called Heather a fake bitch. (laughs) It's like Nicole is trying to play this housewife's game, but I think you know, we find out that she is not going to be a housewife and she's not going to be a friend of. So at some point she stops filming. But I just don't think she has it in her. Like she's trying to play the game, but she's kind of seems like she's playing it wrong and isn't, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. I don't have a good read on her yet, but something is off to me about about her. Although I think all these women are off, clearly. <laughs> so Um, Heather definitely is frustrated that Noella said this about her. She actually has a gift for Noella that she brings to her, you know, to say thank you for talking to my daughter, Max, um, for being so kind to her. Max is uh, recently out as being bisexual and Noella is bisexual. And we saw that little scene where she went over to talk to Max. And so I thought it was great that Heather gave her the gift and that she didn't kind of bring up any of the stuff that Nicole had told her about Noella saying she was a fake bitch. It definitely wasn't the time and place. And I think we couldn't handle another argument at this party. Side note. I love Shane's parents. They're so cute. His mom, Perry, is adorable. And I just, I don't know. I'm not the biggest fan of Emily on the show, but I do enjoy watching her family and I love her relationship with her in-laws. Okay. 
back to the matter at hand. So Emily and Gina finally confront Shannon over Shannon saying that they shouldn't be trusted to Heather. And guys, I'm going to take Shannon's side in this one. After they had promised they wouldn't bring something up, and then they brought it up, like I could see why Shannon was frustrated and was like, you shouldn't trust them. They can't be trusted. Um, I don't know. I don't know why they're so upset. I think they're all kind of grasping at drama to make the show keep moving. And I don't know how upset Gina and Emily actually are because they know what Shannon is like. They know her personality. Like, I don't know. And then Heather and Shannon go and they sit down in a quiet space and they talk. And Shannon gives what I think is a pretty genuine apology to Heather. You know, she's saying, like, I did something wrong and I'm really sorry about it. And Heather just has such a cold response. The first thing she says is, my turn? Okay. (laughs) And she's like, I've heard from everyone. I feel I have a good understanding of the facts and nothing is going to change my mind. And then she goes on to say, I think you had a huge lapse in judgment. Well, no shit, Heather. This is what Shannon is telling you, that she had a lapse in judgment. And then she does this like godfather scene. If you ever come after me or my family ever again, you're going to lose a lot more than just my friendship. This will cost a lot. And I'm not saying this as a threat. I'm saying this as a promise. I mean, what in the Erica Jane hell was that? (laughs) It's like, you think there's some sort of mob boss? I mean, come on. As much as I like watching these sort of dramatic fights, it just, I, I think there is something that Heather is upset about that we don't know that happened either off camera or on camera, but it was cut. It, she seems to be holding on to this in a way that maybe that they were saying worse things about Terry or more stuff about Terry was going to come out. I, I don't quite understand, but it feels like Terry didn't come across that bad with all the stuff that came out. It actually, to me, felt like Nicole came across bad. Like she should have said when she became friends with Heather, oh, I had this like misunderstanding years ago with your husband who did my boob job and I was, whatever happened, happened, right? And then they could move past it. I think it's shady that Nicole didn't bring it up to Heather more so than it was shady that Shannon was telling Gina and Emily. That's my take on it. Uh, But I do love Heather back on this show. I just am worried that she has too much control and too much power. That if she says, I don't want this, that they, you know, they meaning production won't show certain things or will edit her a certain way just because they worked so hard to get her and they are banking on her saving the franchise. And really, I actually think Noella and Dr. Jen are very well cast, and they can be the future of this franchise, Um, not necessarily just Heather. I think if there's no one to hold Heather in check, it will, she'll just get too big of a head, and she'll try to control everything. And that's not as fun to watch. What I do enjoy watching is Noella and Dr. Jen interact, because they are like oil and water, 
And just seeing two people whose personalities and outlooks on life are so different have to interact is it's fascinating. It's interesting to me. Overall, I'm really liking the season of the OC. I'm definitely entertained. And yeah, Uh, we will take a quick break and then I'll be back talking about Salt Lake City. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? (sighs) Well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This week's Real Housewives of Salt Lake City was extra long, and I know we're not getting a new episode on Sunday the 26th, but I feel like this past episode was so good that it will satiate us for two weeks until we're able to get the next new episode. So this episode starts out with a girls' night at Meredith's house. So we've got Meredith, Jenny, and Lisa. And I need more scenes like this. I really enjoy watching them have fun. I know that a lot of us watch for the drama and all of that, but sometimes it's nice to be reminded that these women are friends in some way and that they do enjoy each other's company. And I loved when they joked about role-playing and got Jenny to dress up and put the wig on. It just seemed like they were having a good time. Then we get this scene between Jen Shaw and Lisa Barlow when they're getting lunch. And these two women, I feel like are connected because, in my opinion, they care about the show more than the rest of the cast. They view their role as being real housewives as integral to their identity, and they want to excel at it. And I think that's why they paired up. They became so close. I think they spent a lot of time talking to each other about the show, about what's going to come out on the show, about their storylines for the show. That's just the impression that I get. I was a little bit confused if Jen was actually eating or not, because later in the episode, she talks about it being Ramadan. Um, But they don't really show that. They just show them sort of talking. And Jen, of course, you know, she expects the loyalty of a mob boss. The level of loyalty that she expects, I think, exceeds what is reasonable for a friend to give. I, I, It's just, it's, I don't know. No one's ever allowed to question her. She can berate anyone she wants for whatever reason, for however long she wants, and they're not allowed to be upset. She verbally abuses her friends, and she expects them to shrug it off just like Sharif does. And when they don't, she you know, plays victim. She is the most obviously narcissistic housewife I think we have ever had. And as much as I want to think that Maybe the Southern District of New York will knock some sense into her and she'll plead guilty. I think that she will actually be put in jail for over 10 years and spend that entire time maintaining her innocence. Because in her warped mind, she is always the victim. She is a perpetual victim. No one else can be a victim but her. And 
she views herself in just such a different way than how I think others view her. And I don't think they spent a lot of time on the show going into it, but it appears that there was a big verbal altercation uh, between Jen and Lisa, primarily from Jen to Lisa the night of the Fresh Wolf party, when Lisa was talking to Jen and mentioned Koa's name on camera. Koa was the designer that Jen had hired, and some stories had leaked and video had leaked of Jen verbally abusing and even throwing something at Koa. And so I think Jen was very angry that these videos came out and didn't want anyone to mention them while they were taping. And Lisa mentioned it, and it just threw Jen into an absolute rage. And it seems like later that evening, Jen called Lisa when either they were not filming or cameras weren't present and was just berating her and screaming at her and shouting, you know, fuck you. And Lisa had said the other episode, like, my children were in the car and she was doing this. So Lisa, in my opinion, is rightly upset at Jen. Lisa seems to like when Jen does this to other people, It's one thing. But when it was to her, she never thought Jen would do that to her. And then Jen did it to her. And then I think she was like, wait, this is not the friendship that I signed up for. And I don't know. I think I've had a a friend like this who is very sweet most of the time, but had an issue with narcissism and would like have certain things that would just set her off. And when she was set off, she would yell and scream and demand stuff and claim that you weren't a good enough friend to her. And it was just very manipulative and very toxic and very damaging. So I I feel for Lisa in this moment. Now, when Jen was then arrested and you know all the stuff came out with the indictment, I'm sure in Jen's mind, like, hey, none of what happened the previous week mattered. Like, I need you here for me now. And I get where she's coming from with that. But for Lisa, she's like, not only did you go after me and attack me in a way I thought you never would, now your you know, whole business and everything is coming into question, and maybe you're not the person I thought you were. So I very much understand where Lisa is coming from, and she's trying to set boundaries for herself and let Jen know, like, I'm not going to always be at your beck and call if you treat me poorly. This whole scene is just really fascinating because Jen is so good at turning on the waterworks and making you feel sorry for her and saying what she needs and just completely maintaining her innocence and almost making you question your own sanity. And she does this so well the entire episode that you you feel bad for her. I do when I watch her, but I think it's important to separate how you feel about her and what she's going through and what it will mean for her family, especially her children, and the actual crimes that she has allegedly committed. So um, it's also wild to me that Jen says, Lisa, I called you first. When something happens, I call you first. Why is it always Lisa? Like, why has Lisa taken the top spot in Jen's speed dial and not Heather, who Jen has been friends with longer? It's because Heather questioned things last season and questioned some of Jen's behavior, you know, but she just can't handle anyone questioning her. 
I don't know. I really feel like Jen chose Lisa as her BFF and Lisa chose Jen as her BFF because they're both really, truly bonded by being housewives and want to be famous housewives. And the show means more to them than I think it means to Meredith and I think it means to Heather, Whitney, Mary, or Jenny. So then we get this scene with Heather's brother, Tyler, who is visiting from Switzerland. And does anyone else think he looks a little bit like her ex-husband, maybe shorter, longer hair? But I don't know. There's an uncanny resemblance, (laughs) at least in my opinion. So he apparently began questioning his faith and wrote Heather a letter that he was leaving Mormonism. And this kind of started when she left and it triggered him to sort of look up things about Joseph Smith. Apparently, they're not supposed to kind of Google Joseph Smith or look for anything about Mormonism outside of the church. So any external articles or anything, you know, you're not supposed to question it. You're either part of the church or you're an enemy of the church, is how Heather puts it. And he looked up and found out that Joseph Smith married a 14-year-old. And it's like, that's weird. Like, also, why don't they teach that at church? And he feels a bit duped. Now, Um, A couple episodes ago when I had Taria on the podcast, I argued that I thought that the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City was very critical of Mormonism, way more than it was of Mary's church. And I feel like this episode maybe showcased what I'm feeling a bit more. Like, I think they're questioning this massive institution that is the Mormon church, and they're holding up a light to it and trying to show a lot of the negative things. We don't really get to see a lot of positive things about the church, although I'm sure they exist. And with Mary, I think the question is on Mary and her husband and how they operate, but not on like the type of church that she runs or the type of faith that her parishioners have. But with Mormonism, I feel like they're questioning the type of faith that people have when they're Mormon. And You know, it's just, it's sad to watch them and to know that showcasing this on the show is likely to cause more rifts within their family. I wonder if Heather felt even more comfortable talking about some of this stuff now that her father has passed, the patriarch of the family. And it feels like maybe her father's passing could have impacted her brother as well, starting to question things. And he says he feels in a way that he's saved his children because he thinks he raised them in a cult. And it's so sad to watch this. But he says, that makes me defective, a bad parent. And him and Heather are sobbing. And it's just... Oh, man, I don't know. I know some people think that Heather's storyline about being an ex-Mormon is boring, but I find these scenes with her family so real and so raw that I am fascinated by how this church is impacting her family, about members of her family leaving the church, how that impacts their relationship with one another, and just how they're trying to navigate life that was so regimented and was kind of in this box of this worldview. And now they're exposed to other types of views, and they're just trying to figure it out one step of a, at a time. And I, I find it endlessly fascinating. And speaking of religion, we then get to see Jen and Coach Shaw with their family uh, pray together, and they're marking the end of Ramadan. 
And I don't know, I don't believe we've ever had a Muslim housewife before. And I think it's really amazing to showcase, you know, Ramadan and holding an iftar and praying as a family on on this show. I know last year when Jackie Goldschneider and her family had Rosh Hashanah dinner, to me, that was the first time I felt like Judaism was really on display on one of these shows. I know there have been many Jewish housewives, and some of them have talked about being Jewish, people like Siggy Flicker, but they hadn't actually like showcased Jewish culture um, or prayer or food in any real meaningful way, in my opinion. And so to see it was really meaningful, and I felt like it was really meaningful and breaking barriers for Jen and Sharif. To, to showcase their family praying. Although I'm not sure how Muslim viewers are feeling about Jen Shaw being the like face of Muslim women on this franchise. Uh, probably similar to how I felt about watching Siggy Flicker as a Jew on The Real Housewives of New Jersey. Uh, but nonetheless, I thought it was meaningful. And then their family had an iftar. And Coach Shaw uh, talks to Jen is like, can we go speak? And Jen, she's wearing a head covering and she takes it off and reveals what I can only describe as a Mary Tyler Moore wig. I have no idea what was going on there. But Sharif talks to her about the need to downsize. And Jen doesn't want to, right? She says that their home was supposed to be a place for their families, that she employs most of her family, and it costs them about $15,000 a month. If that is not a red flag and something that the feds are paying attention to, I don't know what is. Like, that is wild that she's taking in that making that much money and spending that much money to hire members of her own family like that. Oh, I don't know. None of this looks good. It also didn't look good when Jen was trying on a fur bikini this week and posting it on Instagram like she's just so outrageous. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. So Sharif, you know, talks about that they're going up against the federal government and that the federal government is wrong and that it's up to them to prove it and it's going to cost money and, you know, it's important for them to downsize. And Jen starts talking about, like, could this be the last Ramadan with my family? Yes, Jen, it probably is, unfortunately. Uh, Will she get to see her kids graduate? No, you probably won't. Like, I don't know why this isn't fully sinking in. Like, it's just crazy. And then she, you know, has this whole, anybody that knows me knows this isn't me. The things that I've been accused of is not me. Well, I went back to the Southern District of New York press release from March 30th when Jen was um, indicted. And it claims that Jen Shaw and Stuart Smith undertook significant efforts to conceal their roles in this business opportunity scheme. And it gives examples that they incorporated their business entities using third-party names and instructed other participants to do the same. They used and directed others to use encrypted messaging applications to communicate with other participants. It's like, if you're not doing anything wrong, why are you using these weird encrypted messaging applications? I mean, this is the kind of shit that Rand was using to communicate with people he was trying to carry on affairs with. I mean, like Telegram. So you send a message and then as soon as it's read, immediately it deletes itself. But this is shady stuff. So for her to say, 
oh, you know, I haven't done anything. This isn't me. Well, if they have evidence that you have been using encrypted messaging applications, like that's, <laughs> it's like, that's not great. Oh, man, I just, I don't know. It, this, the indictment is really, really, really damning. And it's hard for me to watch all the women later in the episode at the Peace Garden kind of listen to Jen and just say like, oh, yeah, you're innocent and innocent until proven guilty. Yes, that's how the system works. But to say that there's no merit to these claims and she has no idea why she's being indicted or getting in trouble for something. She doesn't know who any of these people are. Like that I find pretty hard to believe. All right, so Lisa and Whitney then have a scene filmed together where they go to an underground crater lake to do yoga on paddle boards. And let me tell you, this looks really fun. Like I want to go to Salt Lake City and do this. Um, afterwards, they sit and they chat, and Lisa shares like the conversation that she had with Mary in Vale to Whitney. And they're saying, I asked her all these questions. This is what she said. I talked about Cameron. This is what she said. But Lisa does reiterate that she believes Cameron. So Whitney shares that she got Cameron's number from Angie, and she said, we had a long conversation. And, you know, it's not looking good and that there are these rumors online that Mary and Robert Sr. are predators and that they use, you know, the fear of God as their power to get what they want. And when asked during her confessional about what exactly these rumors are of them being predators, Whitney basically says she doesn't want to share because she's afraid for her family's safety. Like, this is wild, absolutely wild. I do, though, after seeing this scene with them, really want Whitney and Lisa to team up. I feel like Lisa is so focused on like not wanting to be painted as the villain, but I want her to embrace the role of the villain. And I really want Whitney to kind of get off her high horse and be angry at Lisa for trying to produce the show, which we all see that she's doing. Like, I get it, right? She made Cameron come in and be on camera. She's trying to move storylines forward. She's not doing it as... um well concealed as LVP in those first few seasons, right? She's like a little bit clunky. She's getting caught. But I want Whitney not to be so frustrated by it. And I really think if they teamed up, that would be interesting to watch. You all know that I love an unexpected duo. So then we get to sort of the meat of the episode, which is this fall lunch in the International Peace Garden hosted by Jenny. So we see Whitney, Heather, and Jen Shaw drinking ahead of this lunch. And it's weird to see Whitney with Jen Shaw because she was pretty tough on Jen in Vail, you know, reading aloud what she's been accused of, explaining the scheme that Jen was allegedly running and, you know, seeming to believe these allegations against her. But Whitney says that her heart softened because she saw a woman in pain. And Jen says that people are just dropping her. She hasn't even talked to some of her own family. 
And Jen is really, really good at making people feel sorry for her. Like I said, she's a perpetual victim. It doesn't matter that she's actually been indicted for having many victims of her crime. She's painting herself as the ultimate victim. She's the one that has her freedom at stake, and she's going to be taken away from her family. And she did nothing wrong, right? Always. She's always saying she did nothing wrong. Oh, man, I mean, I understand that Whitney wants to be there for Jen's kids and her husband. And I agree that even in our darkest moments, we all could use a little grace. But it does feel kind of phony to me that Whitney and all of them were saying, you know, one thing in Vail. And then when it comes to seeing Jen in person, they don't really have the ability to like tell her, hey, like this doesn't look great. Like, I don't know why it's, I don't know. I think Jen is scary. I think she's just like Mary. I think both of them are very verbally abusive and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that verbal abuse. So you go along to get along. And Whitney's very close with Heather and I think she's following Heather's lead of saying Jen's in a really rough spot and we should support her. I like how Heather talks to Jen, though. She's like, hey, if you're not guilty, like, we'll celebrate your acquittal with you. If you're guilty, like, we'll grieve that and we'll face it head on. I like that Heather is acknowledging that there is a possibility that Jen will be found guilty. And that's that. And I think, you know, it's also a little bit refreshing to have Jen acknowledge also earlier in this episode, like her freedom is at stake and she may be put behind bars for for a long time. So I don't know, at least she's acknowledging it. So then um, Meredith and Lisa, they show up first, then Whitney, Heather and Jen come. Meredith is pissed that Jen was invited and mad at Jenny for inviting Jen Shaw because she had said, if you're going to invite Jen Shaw to an event, don't have me there. Um, but Jenny says, hey, this is the International Peace Garden, and we we want this to be all of us. I, I'm not quite sure where Meredith is coming from this. I, I know as like an individual, she's upset and she wants to separate herself from Jen in some way, especially after the things that Jen allegedly did to her family. But they're also co-stars on a reality show, and there's always going to be group scenes. So I'm not sure what she's expecting from that aspect. Like, is she just never going to film when Jen is there? I, I don't know. Anyway, Mary is super late. So they begin eating, and Mary finally joins them. And while they eat their traditional Vietnamese dishes, which look amazing, they begin to slowly tear each other apart. It comes up that Jenny was in that blonde wig the other day, and Meredith is showing the picture of Jenny in this wig. And Heather says something that I think she didn't mean to be offensive, but she compares Jenny to an anime character. And I, I don't think that's that great, but it's certainly not as awful as what Mary says, which is that Jenny has yellow undertones and that she likes Jen, uh, Jenny's slanted eyes. And it's so wild to hear someone say something like this in to a Asian woman. Ugh, I don't know. Mary is... She's such a mess. I think she has no social 
Like, she's not used to interacting with people, and she says the wrong thing all the time, and no one ever seems to correct her. So from her perspective, she doesn't think she's ever saying or doing anything wrong, because most of her interactions are either with her family or with her congregants. It doesn't seem like she has a lot of peers. And so usually it's your peers that will be like, hey, that's like not really something that you're supposed to say. Or a child, right? Like when my dad uh, or stepmom used the term oriental, I'm like, that's not really what's used anymore, guys. Like, maybe you could say Asian, maybe you could say specifically the country that you're talking about, (laughs) you know, but it seems like no one's ever correcting Mary. And it's wild to me how many times things like this keep happening, you know, where she mentioned Mexican drug cartels, and Lisa didn't say anything. And now this is in front of all of them. And I get that maybe it's so shocking to hear Mary (laughs) speak to Jenny and say, I like your slanted eyes. But at some point, someone should speak up and say, hey, that's not really cool. It shouldn't always have to fall on on Jenny or on whoever she is, Mary is offending. So Heather and Mary seem to chit-chat, and they seem to be at peace. Mary says she likes Heather, and they toast. Lisa jokes that everyone is friends and the Peace Garden is working. And then it all starts to go south when Whitney is whispering to Jen Shaw how everyone is acting fake and like that veil never happened. But you could argue that Whitney's acting fake by chit-chatting with Jen Shaw after what she'd said about Jen in Veil. So (laughs) Jen is like, okay, let's just talk about it. You know, it's like the obvious elephant in the room. So she tells the women that she really had no idea that any of this could happen. She says she's never been in trouble besides one speeding ticket and that she never went to jail that day, which is actually interesting. I mean, maybe she didn't spend time in jail, but like I'm assuming if she was released on bail that she had to have been at least booked. But I don't know the mechanics of how all of that happened. I mean, the federal building that she was brought to, I assume, is part of a courthouse and that maybe there is a hearing where she, I mean, she'd been handcuffed. I don't know. Anyways, Mary kind of jokes that she could tell by Jen's outfit that Jen didn't go to jail. And so they're laughing and Jen says, well, she was dressed to go to Vail, not jail. And Jen goes on to claim, again, her whole story. She thought it was a mistake. She didn't know the names of the people that she was being asked about. You know, she... And then Mary is, to her credit, asking Jen Shaw questions to her face. Like, are you sure you had no clue what was going on? So they just randomly chose your name, you and Stuart? Like, come on, you know? And... Uh, They all then argue about what information they got, whether Lisa was, you know, calling her lawyer or her lawyer was calling her, you know, who Whitney was getting texts from, all the information. And they they do all admit to talking about it. I mean, obviously, Jen knew that this was coming out and there were cameras. So, of course, they were all going to talk about it. But then Mary... (laughs) Mary M. Cosby claims that she didn't talk about Jen. No, not me. I didn't talk about you. But she said horrible things about Jen, potentially the worst out of anyone, because she had a lot of judgment, basically saying that, you know, she believes that you reap what you sow and that she never saw anything good in Jen. And she was scared of her because she knew what she was capable of. 
So to have the audacity to say these things, like you reap what you sow, basically that Jen deserves all that's coming to her. And then to her face, they're like, I didn't talk badly about you. All these other bitches, you know, they were talking shit. But me, I'm your friend. I'm in your corner. And, you know, the other women are like, what? We all talked about it. Jen starts crying. Mary tries to talk to Jen. Lisa interrupts. It's like complete chaos. Mary keeps being like, well, if you're not guilty, like, why are you so scared? You know, if you didn't do anything, it's like, and everyone's like, oh, it's because it's the federal government. And what they're not saying is that the federal government usually doesn't get things wrong in these types of cases. They don't bring charges and massive indictments in unless they have years worth of evidence, right? Like, (laughs) this is not just like random. And the fact that, you know, no one wants to say it out loud, right? And there's more yelling. Lisa's accusing everyone of being fake. Meredith gets pissed. And then she's like, I'm not, you know, and then Lisa's like, well, not you, everyone else. And Heather tells Lisa, you know, hey, don't come at us because you're on point for not showing up for your friend, basically saying, well, Lisa, you weren't there for Jen, so stop being all pissed. And, you know, Whitney tries to get the conversation between Mary and Jen to continue. This is absolute madness. Absolute madness. So, you know, Mary then continues to try and have this like one-on-one conversation with Jen, but the rest of them are at the table. And (laughs) this is one of the most like wild statements I think I've ever heard on Housewives. Mary's like, I care. I don't judge. But I felt betrayal because like, who can't believe the FBI? They're not coming for no reason. (laughs) She's like, I'm not judging you. But like, I am because the FBI doesn't get shit wrong like this. (laughs) It's like so, so wild. And then, you know, Jenny finally has had it. And she's like, don't lie. You're lying. I was right next to you. And she wants Mary to own up to what she said. Now, here is where I'm confused. I wonder if Mary is so delusional, similar to Jen Shaw, that she doesn't remember what she says, doesn't believe that she said those things. Like in her warped mind, maybe she didn't say that Jen is reaping what she sowed, right? The same way that in Jen Shaw's warped mind, she didn't do anything wrong and she has no idea why she's in this situation. I think there's a difference between like when I feel like Erica Jane is lying, I feel like she's truly lying. But when Jen Shaw lies, I feel like it's darker. I feel like she's almost in her own mind believes her own lies, which is, it to me is almost like scarier because I'm not sure. I mean, she has to know right from wrong, right? Because if you're doing something wrong and you're trying to hide it and using encrypted messaging, like that to me indicates that she knew something of what she was doing was wrong, right? But I don't know. She seems to have such conviction when she says she's innocent that part of me is like, does she believe that what she was doing was what Heather said, unsavory, but not illegal. Anyway, um, Jen gets up from the table and crying and Mary follows her. And this is just such an unlikely duo to be having a conversation that it's wild to watch. And Mary has this faux pas where she says, I pray to God you're guilty. I mean, innocent. (laughs) 
like, and Lisa is still spiraling at the table. And Whitney's like, you need to shut the fuck up, like in her confessional. But I just think Lisa is beginning to spiral because she's losing the plot. She loves to self-produce. She thought the season was going to be about going after Mary and the stuff about Mary's church coming out. And all of a sudden, it's about Jen Shaw and, you know, her friendship and her not being a good enough friend to Jen. And it's this is not the way it was supposed to go. So I feel like to her, she feels like she's losing control. And when she loses control, that's when she acts out, in my opinion. And Meredith, like, calls her out on it, you know, like, good for Meredith. But it's also weird that when Meredith tells all of them, hey, like, you guys say you want to be her friend and you act like this, you know, like, if you want to be her friend, be her friend or don't, like me, but don't put her through this, don't treat her this way. And, you know, Lisa finally calls out Meredith, like, okay, you're tired of people being fake, but look at what Mary has been doing. And you basically defend Mary all the time. It's so it's either you're defending your family or you're defending Mary, but you never defend me. And (laughs) Meredith is like so frustrated with Lisa because she's acting kind of hysterical. Like she's very loud. She's talking nonstop. She's talking over everyone. No one can get a word in. And she's like, you have been screaming at me for half an hour. I can't anymore. And Heather's laughing like, oh, God, mom and dad are fighting. What do we do? And Lisa's like, I'm tired of people coming for me. But she asks Meredith to stay for her, that she doesn't feel safe. She wants to, you make me feel safe. And Meredith agrees. You know, it's like they've had this agreement since they started filming. You know, like they'll be there for each other. And Lisa is basically telling her, like, I'm in a rough spot. And it's like everyone finally gets back to the table. But it's just, it's so chaotic. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be a field producer or a cameraman or someone on crew that day because there's so much happening. It almost reminds me of that dinner on The Real Housewives of New York in Cartagena where there were like five conversations happening at once and we were trying to follow all of them. This was just a chaotic and wild scene. And, you know, Heather is speaking to the camera, you know, kind of narrating for all of us saying, we've made everything, you know, you're going through about us. And if anyone understands that this is bad, like, and the obligation to your family, like, it's us, like, we're here for you. And Jen continues to maintain her innocence. And she understands everyone needs to process on their own. But right now, she needs people around her that believe in her and are there for her. And this, again, reminds me of someone who is just such a narcissist that she can't handle anyone not telling her exactly what she wants to hear. And I don't think this is unique to her situation where she's in trouble with the law. I think anytime people bring up something that she doesn't want to hear, a narrative that she doesn't agree with, that she doesn't like, she lashes out verbally and physically we've seen her hit people or try to we've seen her throw a cell phone at an employee in camera footage i mean i think jen shaw is so so dangerous 
with how narcissistic she is, how manipulative she is, and how she is getting these women to feel sorry for her when she has allegedly committed some pretty horrific crimes that have hurt many people and many families. And I think, you know, they obviously feel bad for her, right? She's in this situation and no one would want anyone to be in this situation where you're potentially taken away from your family and your children. But at the same time, I'm hoping that someone other than just Meredith acknowledges the victims at hand in this situation. People spent a lot of time going after Erica for not acknowledging the victims of Tom Girardi and what they have gone through and not showing empathy towards them. I'm hoping at some point the victims of, you know, who have allegedly been scammed and defrauded by people in this, you know, telemarketing conspiracy scheme. Eventually, people are, you know, Andy Cohen, others are asking about those victims. I know that because in The Housewife and The Hustler, we got to see some of those people that were personally impacted by Tom Girardi. It's easier to draw this distinction like, oh, this is a person who got burns on 80 or 90% of their body and the money that was meant for their surgeries and their health care was stolen and given to Erica Jane so she could gallivant on these private jets and purchase exorbitant amounts of jewelry and designer clothing. Like that's easy for us as an audience to digest. What I think is harder to digest is who exactly was defrauded by whom in the scheme that Jen Shaw and Stuart Smith were running with multiple other people. I think that's going to be harder for us as an audience to digest, but I hope that as we watch this, we're not forgetting those people. Anyway, that's my solo recap for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, if you like the podcast, be sure to rate it five stars and leave a nice review. If you have some constructive criticism, feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can DM me. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mandy Slutsker. I love you all. I hope you're staying safe, and I hope you had a very Merry Christmas.